Okay. To begin, I'd like to pose one of the great questions in spiritual life, which is, what really motivates us? You know, what at core brings us here or gets us to practice or really compels us through our life? Under all the habitual grasping and avoiding, what do we most deeply long for? I can speak for myself and say for quite a many years during uh, my early practice and so on, I found myself flip-flopping. And one day I would say, what really matters is truth. I just want to know truth, you know. And then some months later it would be, it's about love. I, I, I just want to, you know. And it would depend on the context. Um, when I was doing a lot of devotional chanting, you know, it was just love was where it was at. And in some of the depth of Buddhist retreats, I'd start seeing the emptiness of everything and, uh, ah, this is truth, this is it, you know, the way to freedom. And then I'd go and do some deep healing work and say, ah, oh, compassion, that's where, you know. So you get the idea. I went back and forth. In more recent years, what's increasingly appeared to be the case is that they're inextricably intertwined. This part of us that really wants to know what's it all about, you know, really wants to know, and this part of us that just wants to be free to love fully. They go very hand in hand. And that's what I'd like to talk about tonight. Last week I emphasized um, some of the great truths of the wisdom traditions, and I'm going to go back to them again. But I'd like to talk about how some of these basic truths, in particular the truth of no self or emptiness, goes hand in hand with the arising of compassion, that they're not separate in the final experience of it in a very pure way. So last week I talked, I'd come from a Tibetan retreat and I really talked about some of what we realize when we stop holding on so tight, when we start letting go into what is, what it is that we see. And in a very quick, concise way, we see everything's changing. We see that there's no entity we can call a self in the midst of this change. We see that when we try to hold on to any sense of self or any sense of anything, there's suffering. That's what we see. Now, last week, what I had, those of you that were here know, I had us do was some reflective inquiry so that it wasn't just me saying, it's all empty, empty meaning empty of self, there's no self here, but to look within, to reflect, to ask the question, Who's experiencing this? And I'd like to ask it again. Right now, who's aware? Who's listening? If you just stop, instead of looking at the screen or listening to the words, turn the awareness around. Who's paying attention right now? Who's in there? Is there some person behind the curtains that you can actually see and identify? What do you notice when you turn the mind and look at the movie projector? (laughs) 
I'd like to invite you to do that again and again through your lives. Last week when we did it and people shared a bit, what became clear was that when we turn and really look, there is no solid entity that we can find. Rather, there's this changing flow of experience. There's more sounds and more sensations and light and energy, but nothing solid, nothing enduring. It's said that we get mesmerized by the contents on the movie screen. We live our life kind of looking outward and believing in the contents of the screen, and it's really a deep and revealing practice to turn the awareness around and look at the projector Look at who's looking. So in the wisdom traditions, this practice of paying attention in a deep way, mindfulness of awareness itself, becomes quite revealing. What's found, again, is this sense that there is no self, but rather there's this changing flow which really is dynamic and creative, And there's a sense of the divine, that it's everything, that all that we experience is part of mind, a divine expression of basic cosmic creativity. This is the ultimate secret of all the spiritual traditions, that there's not a God out there, but rather when we play pay very, very close attention, we relax, we tune in, we discover that all that we're experiencing is that expression of the divine. That's who we are. The Hindus use a mantra, tatvamasi, thou are that, thou art that. The Christians, the Father, you and I are one, that's Jesus. The Buddhas, look within, just look within. You are the Buddha. So this is the great secret of the wisdom traditions, that when we really pay attention, we discover that who we are is not a separate self with a narrow definition of good qualities and bad qualities and this potential and not that that limitation, but rather we are the ocean. We are the divine principle. That's us. So this is the realization that we awaken to. The embodiment of this realization, its expression, its manifestation, is love. So what the mind sees as no self, as impermanent, the heart experiences as love, as compassion. Now, last week, after we did the exercise of turning the mind and reflecting who's in there, One person said, I see that it's empty of self, you know, I see that it's all changing and that there's no self there, but where's the sense of meaning then? Where's their meaning? If all this universe is, is this kind of changing display, what what motivates us then? Where's the meaning? And I think it's a wonderful question because to just look and just see what we call emptiness without its embodiment, feeling the heart, is dry. There is not a sense of meaning. In fact, we see that we really cherish this separate self-identity. We really hold to it. And when we start letting go and seeing there is no self there, there's a real sense of loss. One 
very wonderful teacher from Boston described it, that all of the spiritual path includes grieving because we keep having to let go of everything we're holding on to. Do you understand? Grieving over and over. And it's really in that grieving, in that sense of loss, that we discover (coughs) the compassion or the heart that really is the juiciness of the path. A Tibetan teacher that I study with describes it this way, that what we discover is emptiness suffused with compassion. I think that's so beautiful. That there really is no self, but the full experience of that is just filled with the feeling and flavor is love, is compassion. For many of us, the way we discover the truths of who we are is not so much because we turn the mind and see that it's all empty, but it's really through compassion. In fact, it's been described that this cosmic game of coming into manifestation, taking form and so on, really requires that we open our heart to really see the truth. You might think of it this way that out of the great nothingness, form takes shape. And that it's not a mistake that we get identified with form, that we sense that our identity is the shape that we experience. It's not a mistake that we actually organize around this sense of separate self with fear and with wanting. And that's important because basic to the Buddha's teachings are that our wanting creates suffering. And yet, we were designed to want, don't you think? I mean, it's part of our biology. So it's not a mistake. It's also part of our capacity that we wake up and start discovering a larger and more boundless sense of identity that we release, are not so identified with the wanting and the fear. But there's a kind of a developmental unfolding Now, for many of us, this becoming into form and developing a wise relationship with form is incomplete. Many of us have been traumatized. Many of us have an unstable sense of self. So to jump into a sense of emptiness before we've stabilized out and found a sense of care and appreciation within that self-sense really doesn't work so well. Some people might have noticed last week that in exploring the nature of no-self that it was disturbing, that it felt not right for right now. And that can be true. And I want to put that out there because there's many ways to waking up. Jack Engler, who's the teacher from Boston I mentioned earlier, says that you have to have a self before you can discover no-self. And I think that's perfect that if we don't have a well-integrated sense of ourself, if we don't have a sense of care towards self, to try to leap into saying, oh, no self's here, it's all empty, is not really going to work for us. And I'll give you an example. Let's say great waves of anger or rage arise in a uh, close relationship. And here we are, we've been introduced to the teachings of no self, so there's no one home having this anger, and there's no one to be angry at, right? Isn't that kind of what we're talking about? (laughs) Okay. 
So, and, and let's say there's abusiveness and we're angry because of an abuse, but there's no one home being abused and there's no one that's abusing. So we just say, oh, no self. Don't bother with any, detach from the feelings we have there. Don't set up any boundaries. And that's a setup for the karma of more abuse, more problems. That's not a situation where you teach the teachings of emptiness. So what do you do? What would be a way of moving towards freedom in those circumstances? Start right where you are. Okay, anger's arising. Don't try to jump into no one's having this anger. Rather, honor it. Just be establish a friendly, compassionate relationship with anger. Feel it fully. Feel underneath the anger, the fear, or the hurt that might be there. In the process of honestly relating with whatever arises, if we're real with it, there's a natural compassion that begins to hold the experience when we're very real and feel fully what's there. It's like having a boat that's very unstable and when we're not able to be with ourselves, it can collapse easily, but the more we can be with our being, the more compassion, the more space there is for our feelings, the boat becomes like one of those really wide, like sea kayaks, it's much more sturdy. Compassion becomes this container that allows us to feel fully what's arising. And in that openness, we discover no self, but not because we posited it right at the beginning. Does that make sense? I see some nods. (laughs) It's a sequence. We need our hearts friendly towards our sense of separateness and self, towards all the moods that arise before we can discover that there's no self there. Garfield. As a cat, I love to explore the unknown. And he looks behind him. Nothing behind me. That's enough exploring for one day. (laughs) We open to what we can and ultimately... What we discover, and this is our capacity, is that we are the ocean, that these waves of anger are not who we are. They're part of, but not a defining kind of uh, illustration of who we are. Part of our being, but not the whole. So gradually our identity shifts from thinking we're these waves of anger or these waves of limited selfhood to being this ocean of being that includes it. But in the meanwhile, it can appear that we're the waves. I mean, waves look like they're separate. One's really tall and green and frothy, and the other's fast-moving and rolling quickly. Some are choppy. They look like they're separate, and for moments they appear. But the truth of the nature of these waves is they're made of water. We're made of the essence of this universe. There's nothing other than that. Kala Rinpoche probably says it as well as anywhere I've ever heard it you live an illusion in the appearance of things you think you're this wave or that wave or this thought when you see it you will discover you are nothing and being nothing you are everything that is all When we begin to sense this openness or boundlessness of identity, that we really are this ocean, we are awareness, 
we are all here together in that, then our heart can relate to all the waves that arise with a sense of kindness. It's all part of our being. Not separate, not other. This is the basic principle in awakening, that we can't separate the understanding of being impermanent and empty on one hand and the natural love that arises when we experience that in the other. Stephen Levine puts it this way, love is not an emotion, it is a state of being. True love has no object. Many speak of their unconditional love for another. Unconditional love is the experience of being. There is no I and other. And anyone or anything it touches is experienced in love. You cannot unconditionally love someone. You can only be unconditional love. It is not a dualistic emotion. It is a sense of oneness with all that is. The experience of love arises when we surrender our separateness into the universal. It is a feeling of unity. You don't love another, you are another. There is no fear because there is no separation. It can be interesting to reflect on the moments when we really did feel the freedom of loving in that unconditional way. And if we asked ourselves in those moments, who's here loving, what we'd find. For most, there would not be any solid sense or contracted or small sense of a self, just love happening. And we certainly know the opposite. It said that the shadow of the separate self is fear, that when we're feeling very separate, there's a smallness that's scary, and it's very hard to feel intimacy in those moments. Now, the awakened heart has been described in many spiritual traditions in terms of devotion. And it's a wonderful word. What it means, devotion means to give up wholly, to let go into fully. It's the boundless quality of loving. It's that unconditional quality. Falling in love in the best sense means just not holding back, not holding on to that sense of separate self, just letting go into what is the real true and wonderful communion, which is our nature. Now what happens, and we know this, is that devotion can easily come into the service of some more small-minded kind of object. In other words, we can get devoted to the aggrandizement of self or to some narrow goal, get devoted to a group or a technique and lose sight of what really our hearts are longing for. I know in, on my path, I spent a number of years living in an ashram, and there were moments of very free sense of devotion where it was really um, devoted to living fully, to loving, to being awake. And there were other times that the devotion got riveted on the personality of the head teacher, certain scriptures, certain practices, certain beliefs of the group. It was smaller, it was tight, it lost its connection with the power of what it can be. So devotion on a mature path is really towards awakening, towards living fully, towards really having the freedom to love, which we all want to have.
It's important in our lives to sense what we're devoted to because for most of us, it operates on all those levels. We devote ourselves to smaller things. We get hooked on substitutes. And there are times that we feel this welling up of being devoted to, in a very ultimate way, being fully who we can be, which is to live our Buddha nature. I'll give you a, an uh, example of more small-minded devotion. This is about Larry Waters of Los Angeles. Larry's boyhood dream was to fly. When he graduated from high school, he joined the Air Force in hopes of becoming a pilot. Unfortunately, poor eyesight disqualified him. When he was finally discharged, he had to satisfy himself with watching jets fly over his backyard. One day, Larry had a bright idea. He decided to fly. He went to the local Army-Navy surplus store and purchased 45 weather balloons and several tanks of helium. The weather balloons, when fully inflated, would measure more than four feet across. Back home, Larry securely strapped the balloons to a sturdy lawn chair. He anchored the chair to the bumper of his Jeep and inflated the balloons with helium. He climbed on for a test while it was still only a few feet above the ground. Satisfied it would work, Larry packed several sandwiches and a six-pack of Miller Lite, <laughs> loaded his pellet gun, figuring he could pop a few balloons when it was time to descend, and went back to the floating lawn chair. He tied himself in along with his pellet gun and provisions. Larry's plan was to lazily float up to a height of about 30 feet above his backyard after severing the anchor and in a few hours come back down. Things didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> when he cut the cord anchoring the lawn chair to his Jeep, he streaked into the L.A. sky as if shot from a cannon. <laughs> after climbing and climbing, he leveled off at 11,000 feet. <laughs> At that height, he became too afraid to risk shooting any of the balloons, lest he unbalance the load. He stayed there, drifting and cold for more than 14 hours. <laughs> then he really got in trouble. He found himself entering the primary approach corridor of the Los Angeles International Airport. <laughs> A United pilot first spotted Larry. <laughs> he radioed the tower and described passing a guy in a lawn chair with a gun. <laughs> Radar confirmed the existence of an object floating 11,000 feet above the airport. LAX emergency procedures swung into full alert and a helicopter was dispatched to investigate. LAX is right on the ocean. Night was falling and the offshore breeze began to blow. It carried Larry out to sea <laughs> with the helicopter in hut pursuit. <laughs> Several miles out, the helicopter caught up with Larry. Once the crew determined that Larry was not dangerous, they attempted to close in for a rescue, but the giraffe from the blades would push Larry away whenever they neared. <laughs> Finally, the helicopter ascended to a position several hundred feet above Larry and lowered a rescue line. Larry snagged the line and was hauled back to shore. The difficult maneuver was flawlessly executed by the helicopter crew. As soon as Larry was hauled to Earth, he was arrested by waiting members of the LAPD for violating LAX airspace. <laughs> As he was led away in handcuffs, a reporter dispatched to cover the daring rescue asked why he had done it. Larry stopped, turned, and replied nonchalantly, a man can't just sit around. <laughs> he won the 1997 Darwin Award winner for, <laughs> this is for a person who does the most extraordinary thing 
in a, in a way of killing themselves in the most stupid way, and he's the only one that survived <laughs> this award. So why do I tell you that <laughs> story? I, I like it. <laughs> we all get waylaid. This was a little more dramatic. But we all take that very deep longing in us to be free and latch it on to just get this degree or just control this for a little more time and then let it loose or whatever it is. And yet, in the most ancient languages, and in every one of them, the word for home is God or goddess or divine. And our deepest longing is to come home, is to touch that place of freedom, of openness. We cultivate the qualities of an open heart because it allows us to be fully who we are, to be free. Carl Jung said, nothing is possible without love. For love puts one in the mood to risk everything, not to withhold the important elements. It allows us to become whole, to come home. So what cultivates? What encourages, what allows us to develop this kind of wholeheartedness? It's our nature, and yet on every spiritual path, there are ways we can intentionally open these hearts. The first way I'd like to mention is really by opening to longing. We have a lot of ways of not letting ourselves feel what we really long for. We get preoccupied, we get afraid of it, we think we can't have it. Longing for love really is love. You can't long for something you don't intuitively already know about. It comes from love in us. Longing is the energy that brings us here. It's the energy that allows us to have the courage to reach out out of our habitual way and touch another person and let ourselves be touched. So healthy longing is this urge to become more fully who we are. And as John O'Donohue put it, and this is a Celtic poet and philosopher, if you succeed in awakening this longing and inhabiting it, then you come fully into divine presence. If you succeed in awakening this longing and inhabiting it. So the question that I'd like to bring up then is, how do we open to this longing in us, but not get snagged by all the attachments, not get caught floating in lounge chairs or <laughs> worshiping false gods or whatever it is we attach things to? How do we feel this love of spirit, but not get attached to spirits, you know, the different ways that we think will bring us there? Because the truth is we all do repeatedly get snagged. And it seems like a most basic part of the path that our intention is to open to this longing and that we keep mindful of where the glue is, where we get snagged, but not mindful in a way that's so afraid that we push away our longing. The best example I can give you of what I'm talking about was for me probably one of the great learning experiences of my life. Uh, it happened about eight or nine years ago that I developed this very close, intimate, loving relationship with a married man and never acted out in a sexual way, but it was on one of those real, you know, risky kind of territories. 
And so all this longing for intimacy and communion and love came up in me, and all the shame that covered it up, which is the first thing that happens. When we really start feeling longing, we very quickly can feel shame. So at first I did a lot to meditate it away, you know, concentrate on the breath and sit up very straight and listen to sounds. And and of course it didn't work at all. You know, I kept getting barraged by all these waves of, of passion and wanting and so on and shame. So it became my practice. And this, for several retreats and the time in between, it really became the path for me on how to open and honor strong waves of longing without feeling lost in them, without acting out on them. It really became the path. And what I found worked was to notice the story as much as possible, because there's always these stories, but to keep on dropping into where the longing lived in a very embodied way, to keep opening. And to keep opening to that energy meant opening to the fear around it, the shame, the lust, the love, the hope, just to keep opening to the waves of experience. What I discovered was, somewhere along the line, my sense of who I was shifted from small self yearning for something that's outside or needing something out there to this openness of heart that had room for all these different waves of what's really quite a universal and powerful energy. In other words, I kind of opened to become the openness the compassion, and didn't feel so victimized by the waves. This is the identity shift that the Buddha describes again and again as possible when we don't back off from what we're experiencing and we don't get lost in what we're experiencing. Rather, there's care and there's presence. We just open to the feelings that are there. In this case, what I discovered was that what I was seeking was this boundless loving experience that was within. It wasn't something out there, which is something so many of us keep rediscovering. We're not in love with another being. We are absolutely in love with that state of in loveness. Rumi puts it better. The minute I heard my first love story, I started looking for you, not knowing how blind that was. Lovers don't finally meet somewhere. They're in each other all along. So Rumi, this mystic and this poet, is one of the greatest beings in terms of expressing the manifestation of love and compassion with wisdom. You'll hear from him again tonight. So we don't fall in love with another. We just access this unconditional love that's our nature. That in us which is longing for love is love. I've run into so many others that have hit the same snag, clients and students and friends that have felt longing for something and then slapped it down because of shame or fear rather than opening to the power of it and losing in that the opportunity to really discover its source, which is within each of us. Now, the natural expression of longing is prayer. Prayer doesn't mean to a deity sitting up on a certain specific cloud, but just that expression of what we long for. 
for me, when I first got involved in Buddhism, I considered prayer to be dualistic, that if I was praying, I was praying to some other being, and therefore I was reinforcing a sense of separate and lesser self. And so for quite a long time, even though I'd have these urges, I would just say, oh, that's just kind of an immature, whatever. you know, I just kind of put it down. Um, but I dropped that. <laughs> and what I discovered, and what so many discover, is that when our prayer, our longing is from a very deep and sincere and alive place, what it does is it connects us more fully with that place that it comes from. Some of you might know this Rumi. In times of sudden danger, most people call out, oh my God. Why would they keep doing this if it didn't help? (laughs) (laughs) Only a fool keeps going back where nothing happens. The whole world lives within a safeguarding, fish inside waves, birds held in the sky, the elephant, the wolf, the lion as he hunts, the dragon, the ant, the waiting snake, even the ground, the air, the water, every spark floating up from the fire, all subsist, exist, are held in the divine. Nothing is ever alone for a single moment. All giving comes from there. No matter who you think you put your open hand out toward, it's that which gives. So asking for blessings, which is really a basic part of many of the Buddhist traditions, is this natural part of us. It's said that we're a child in practice, and in a real way we are. There's still there's some place in us that really gets alive and free when we feel held, when there's some sense of a container. And that asking for blessings actually gives us a sense of the boundless heart that is really within each of us. So just as a brief exercise, if you will, to sit up and take a few moments to close your eyes and feel your breath. Let go a little, relax, and come into your body. Feel your heart. And then just to ask yourself the question, what is it I long for in this life? What do I long for? What are the, what's the inner experience I'm longing for? What am I longing for in relationship? Often the same question. What really matters? What's the deepest aspiration? And then sense how you can relate to this longing. Can you honor it? Feel it fully? Welcome it? Including with care whatever the fears, the grasping that might circle around it. Just making room for it all. Through deep practice. Touching our longing, opening, feeling the energy underneath. If you succeed in awakening this longing and inhabiting it, then you come fully into divine presence. 
staying in a sense of presence, but opening your eyes when you'd like. So this is the first aspect of devotion. It's an honest recognition and, and welcoming of the longing that comes from so deep in us. And then with mindfulness, sensing when it's grasping, opening to the energy that's underneath. Now a second aspect of devotion that I'd like to talk about tonight, of, of cultivating the heart, has to do with embracing what is in another way. First, what happens when pain arises? How do we embrace that? It's said that in the moment that we embrace pain, compassion naturally arises. It's been described as the quivering of the heart in the face of suffering. So a whole deep and beautiful part of this practice is this learning to be with what's difficult. Discovering that pain's impersonal, that when we feel pain, physical pain, emotional pain, it's not my pain, it's just the pain. That we all share a measure of this cosmic pain as the Sufis describe it. We know that when we're together, and this is one of the beauties of friendship, when we can let each other know about our vulnerability, it actually wakes us up to the fact that it's not mine or yours. It's just the vulnerability, the pain, the grief that's universal. And there's freedom in knowing that because it's only when we own it and make it ours that the shame and the fear and everything else wraps around it so that there's no freedom. We discover we're in it together when we don't reject it, These are universal waves that arise that when they're felt and not resisted, open us to interconnection. We cannot feel our connection with each other if we're busy fighting off pain. Uh, Sokni Rinpoche, the Tibetan teacher I just studied with, says this. He says, a hundred emotions, a hundred instances of wakefulness. A thousand emotions, a thousand instances of wakefulness. It's the juiciness of the practice that if it's just all emptiness and there's no sense of the tugs and the squeezes and the heart being sore and the wanting and the fearing, we don't discover in this huge play of conditioning our relationship with each other and that universal compassion that can hold it. Rumi describes night travelers who search the darkness instead of running from it. It said that in the tenderness of the pain itself, these night travelers discover the light of the awakening heart. Isn't that beautiful? In the tenderness of the pain itself, when we really have the courage to open, we discover what's called bodhicitta, the awakened heart. Now, like all expressions of the heart, compassion can be veiled with grasping and aversion. It can sometimes take the shape of pity. You know, we we think we're being compassionate, but really it's, oh, you poor thing over there who's so far from me and different from me. So there's pity. Or sometimes it's attachment. We think it's compassion, but we're really wanting to fix or control or change someone's experience. Most of us know that one. Or sometimes we just dissociate, we just create a distance and numb from it because we're afraid of the ocean of tears. We're just afraid we can't handle how much it is. When we resist, we don't discover the boundlessness of our heart does have room. 
Who we are is the space, is that open space of heart that has room for all the joys and sorrows, for all that's there. So the practice of cultivating compassion is really the practice of opening again and again to where our edge is, where we're resisting, where the armoring is, learning to be with and to offer care to what arises. So in that spirit, we'll do our next kind of little guided part of the exercise. If you'll again come sitting, just to give you little flavors of this, especially for those of you that haven't done these compassion practices together. Again, taking a few breaths and in an honest way, connecting with your experience. Seeing what's true. You might be restless, achy, involved, dissociated, numb, whatever it is, and let there first be a tenderness towards that. If there's within you any real discomfort, vulnerability, and for each of us there's usually some flavor of that, to let with the in-breath it be felt fully. So there's this willingness to feel what's difficult. If there's not any, just to breathe in and feel fully what's there. So with each in-breath, we open to what's within us. And if it's difficult, really with that quality of allowing, letting your heart be touched by what's there. With the exhale, just offering care to what's experienced. This is Tangalin, opening to what's true. Receiving with the in-breath, with the out-breath, offering some space, some care. Taking some moments to bring to mind someone who's dear to you and who is struggling with something, who's having a hard time. Each of us knows at least one, most of us know many. Bringing to mind a person, sensing their struggle, sensing their suffering, where they're vulnerable, scared, having a hard time, feeling alone maybe. And again with the breath, breathing in the sense of their suffering, just letting your being be open to it. Letting it touch your heart with the in-breath. Willing to open and be with what's there. With the out-breath, offering your care. Giving some space, ventilating what's there. Breathing in and feeling what's difficult. Breathing out, letting go, offering care and love. listening to the words of Chogyam Trungpa, if you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there's nothing there except for tenderness. You feel soft and sore, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There's no skin or tissue covering it. It is pure, raw meat. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is raw and tender and personal. 
For the spiritual practitioner, this experience of the sad and tender heart is what gives birth to fearlessness. Real fearlessness is the product of our tenderness. It comes from letting the whole world tickle your heart, your raw and beautiful heart. You're willing to open up without resistance or shyness and face the world. You're willing to sit here and share your heart with the whole of life. Opening your eyes when you wish. So one flavor of devotion is what happens when we open to what's difficult, the compassion that arises. Now another flavor of devotion is what happens when we open to what is pleasant, what is beautiful. And this is usually called love or gratitude. There's a Greek word for beauty. It's called tassalon. And the word salon, C-A-L-L-O-N, has in it the notion of calling, that beauty calls us, it brings us home. So many of us seek nature, because nature, what is natural, is beautiful. It's just the expression of the divine in the most elemental form. It calls us home, it brings us back. It's said that the Indian teacher Ramakrishna, um, who had a number of disciples, was um, absolutely deeply in awe of the mystery and beauty of the world. And his disciples were hesitant to bring him a flower because the beauty of one flower would send him into days of blissful absorption. You know, they wanted him around to answer questions. You know, so they didn't want him off. So like all qualities of the heart, this deep appreciation and wonder sense of the divine happens naturally when we relax and just pay attention to the small things of our life. That's where it really happens. To summer nights. Have you been enjoying these summer nights? Yeah. Feeling the breeze on your cheek or even just kind of moving through hot, wet airs. Got a sensational feeling, you know. Seeing the fragility or the abundance of flowers or just the reflection of light or brightness in a dear person's eyes, just seeing aliveness, you know, can really, really bring up that very deep sense of gratitude. It doesn't come necessarily because we're seeing huge fireworks of stuff, you know, very simple things. It's really one of the most delicious feelings, gratitude. Um, There's a story some of you know uh, that I'll share with you because it's so much fun. Maurice Sendak was asked um, to share comments from readers he's received, and he said, oh, there's so many, you know, who Maurice Sendak is the author and illustrator of children's books. Well, can I give you just one that I really like? It was from a little boy. He sent me a charming card with a little drawing. I loved it. I answer all my children's letters, sometimes very hastily, but this one I lingered over. I sent him a postcard, and I drew a picture of a wild thing on it. I wrote, Dear Jim, I loved your card. Then I got a letter back from his mother, and she said, Jim loved your card so much he ate it. (laughs) That, to me, was one of the highest compliments I've ever received. He didn't care that it was an original drawing or anything. He saw it, he loved it, he ate it. So there's this natural response we have to beauty and to nature, and then there's also 
as with anything, we can cultivate gratitude. We can be intentional about it. Um, learning to see. Learning to see our conditioning to judge and create distances. And then to see through that and really see the person that's sitting near us or that we're listening to or the flower that we're looking at. So many of us find that at odd moments when our children are sleeping or very happy we see the spirit in them or when somebody else that we know has been deeply moved and they're in a very sincere or vulnerable place, all of a sudden we see it. Um, this is a, a real beautiful description by Thomas Merton of what happens when we really look. He writes, It was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depth of their hearts where neither sin or knowledge could reach, the core of reality, the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine, if only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more need for war, for hatred, for greed, for cruelty. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. So when we release our preoccupation with what we're afraid of and what we want, our eyes open up to behold the world. It's a sense, it's been described as we die to ourself and we open to it all. We open to, to all aspects of being alive. Rumi writes, the price of kissing is your life. Now my loving is running toward my life shouting, what a bargain, let's buy it. Yeah. Do you understand? This willingness to give up everything and in return, become everything. We get deeply called. There's a story, um, I think it was yesterday's post, some of you might have seen a 79-year-old man who was the first one to walk the Appalachian Trail. Did you read that? He, um, it's 2,160 20, miles, and he was the first to do it, and he inspired conservationists to mark the trail and so on. And then he did it again later in his life, and now he's doing it for the third and probably last time. He's 79. It's a long way. Um, he was asked, what makes you go off like this, to do something like that? And he paused and he said, it's the beauty, you know, for beauty for love, for truth, we can give our lives and open up to being fully alive. One teacher described it that when we're lost in preoccupation with ourself, when all our thoughts are rotating around what can go wrong or right, it's like being a wildflower in this field of wildflowers with blinders on. I thought that was really good. Just, we just miss out on so much. So it's a practice, this practice of noticing, of seeing, of being grateful. And this will be our next uh, little exercise, if you will, again, to come sitting. And just take a moment because this is as good a time as any to reflect on what you're grateful for. What are the gifts? What's the grace in your life? 
Where is their beauty? Where is their love? Where do you sense the mystery? yourself bow in your own heart to what you're grateful for. It's really the essence of bowing. It's just honoring what's true, what's beautiful, what's love. This is really bowing to the divine, which is our own experience. be a way of moving through life, bowing more and more to these moments that just present themselves. Rumi again, I am water. I am the thorn that catches someone's clothing. There's nothing to believe. Only when I quit believing in myself did I come into this beauty. Day and night I guarded the pearl of my soul. Now, in this ocean of purling currents, I've lost track of which was mine. Letting go into the moments and bowing to what is, to what arises. We'll continue this final meditation with some of the different pieces that we've described tonight beginning by just simply softening in the body again, trusting this moment and letting go into the body, feeling a sense of presence, following the breath out as you breathe out and sensing space and sound. In a few minutes, but not yet, we'll be chanting. With each out-breath, just imagine that you could follow the breath out and sense all the space around you, letting the awareness occupy that space. Let whatever arises float in an open space of heart. Thoughts, sounds, sensations. Bowing to or honoring what arises all as part of the display of the divine. All of life has an echo in the heart of the divine. The mantra Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Namah Namo means I bow, 
Om is the infinite, it's all that arises, Shivaya, creation, destruction, all of life and death. Develop this heart as wide as the world, this great boundless heart of compassion when we bow to whatever arises. We'll be ending tonight chanting Om Namah Shivaya. It's this chant to allow us to open our hearts to all of life. So listen for a few moments, if you will, and then please join in chanting from the heart. putting the chant on now. You'll hear it on the tape, you'll hear the words, and then please join in.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.